in your Bibles to John chapter 13. We may actually finish this 13th chapter, and to do so, I may bounce around a little bit. Uh, so next month, at the beginning of next month, my goal, or my hope is to, unless we just really get bogged down on a certain scripture, um, is to get into the meat of verse 14, or chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. We have spent a lot of time on this upper room discourse, the first Sunday of every month for a good while. Uh, as we take the Lord's Supper, we are trying to consider the context in which it was first taken. If there was a sermon preached, Jesus preached it. And he preached it right here. And it was the context of him loving his own, loving them unto the end. And we talked about the foot washing and everything about that. But then we got into the heart of what the problem is. Why he had to start the next chapter by saying, let not your heart be troubled. And there's trauma here. There is the reality of betrayal that came to the forefront. Uh, as he says, one of you is going to betray me. And all the doubts that surrounded that, because they began, according to the wholeness of all four Gospels, they began to doubt in themselves. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And that's traumatic. Right? When you think about there's, there's a betrayer among us, that's, that's, a, that's a hard thing to deal with with the faithful, with the faithful disciples. Uh, just the fact of apostasy is, is hard for us to deal with sometimes, and even though we see it, and it just it becomes more and more the norm of our day for people to walk away from the faith. And then we started last time, last month, January 1st, to talk about the trauma of his departure, where he announced his departure, and the reality of that departure, how it's, how it's set in. And let's go ahead and pick up there from there, and we'll begin to read in verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, speaking of Judas... Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And if God be glorified in Him, God shall also glorify Him in Himself, and shall straightway glorify Him. And we saw how this is the crux of the matter, that everything that is happening, Christ going away, is for, his, is for this glory. And this cannot be spoken about a mere man. This, we see this sharing of glory between the Father and the Son. And this speaks so loudly of the grander reason for which Christ came in this reciprocal uh, relationship that He has with the Father, working salvation in this world, and how He, through this, is going to be glorified. And we pick up, that's where we left off, and we'll pick up from there with verse 33. But let's go ahead and read to the end of the chapter. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, 
And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye shall, if you have one love, one for another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> We're in the King James here. Whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, you, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me hereafterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say to you, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Really, the end of this chapter, there's very little needs to be said about it. And I will say very little about it. It mixes from here. I want to zero in specifically today, and I just want to make a few comments on verse 34 and 35 and why it's necessary. It's necessary because as we're celebrating again the Lord's Supper, we're recognizing Christ is not physically here with us. He's absent. He's not absent spiritually. He still sits at the table with us spiritually. But one day He will be here. He departed 2,000 years ago. And what, need, what we need in the interim, as we recognize his physical absence, is verse 34 and 35. Let's go back and talk about the trauma, the traumatic events here. He says, I'm leaving. And then when Peter challenges the fact that he's leaving and says, why can't I not go with you right now? He says... I'm ready to lay down my life for you. I, I, I'm able and I'm going to. I'm making, this, I'm making this pledge. And by the way, so said all of them according to one of the synoptic gospels. So this isn't just Peter's failure. We're zeroing in on Peter here. But the fact that we fail. How many of you all failed this week? Don't answer. <laughs> right? Don't answer that. But we fail. He's absent and we're falling, we're stumbling, we're tripping over. We're not, we're not fulfilling all the things that we are saying we're able to do for Christ. And the arm of flesh will always fail you. And Christ brings that out. You, Okay, Peter, you're going to lay down your life for me. You're going to, you're going to stand in your, on your own strength and in your own veracity. You're going, to, you're, you're going to stand in your flesh, which is what he's later going to warn him about when he's praying in Gethsemane. The, the spirit is willing, Peter, but your flesh is weak. You're going to stand on your own. Okay, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny that you even know me. You're not going to lay down your life for me. And we're, let us remind ourselves something about this truth. It's only by the mercies of God that you and I can present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Amen? Romans 12, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies. P Peter speaks from his flesh. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And 
He's, and basically, Jesus says, you're going to fail. That's hard to take. Now you know why. Uh, now you know why he has to start the next chapter by saying, let not your heart be troubled. Because there's some troubling truths here. There's a betrayer. I'm going away. And you're not able to stand. Hard news. Not necessarily a Joel Osteen sermon, right? Uh, not, 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 a, not, not the name it, claim it kind of faith being presented here. There's betrayers. I'm going away. And you can't stand on your own. Backing up a little bit, our, like I said, there is not much really to exegete here in verse 36 through 38. Other than, it, other than it highlights our inability to stand on our own. Because as I said before, uh, Peter wasn't the only one saying this. It said, I think in Matthew, and I can look it up in the notes, but I, it says in Matthew, so said all of them. And probably so said all of us uh, in different contexts. Right? Oh, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And uh, he didn't, did we? The arm of flesh fails. Those are the points of trauma. Let's go back up here to verse 33. As we see three things here, Christ is going, in this context, he's leaving. He says, I, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You're going to seek me. And you can't go where I'm at. He says, you're, you're going to seek me. I'm going away. And you're going to seek for me. So one, Christ is going to depart. Secondly, they cannot follow him. And I, I think it's very interesting that he says this in the same sense, just like I said to the Jews. Because he did say this to the Jews not too, not too soon or not too long before this. And we're going to mention that text. But he said it not the way he's saying it here. But he says, at least this part, as I said to them, I'm saying to you, you cannot follow. But he adds something that he didn't give to the Jews. So now I say to you, and this becomes even more clear when he speaks again to Peter. He says, the inability to, but the inability to follow is for them only for the present time. He's going to say later to Peter, he says, he says this more clearly. He says in verse 36, Whither I go, you cannot follow me right now, presently. But, here's... You, if you want anything exegetically in, in verse 36 through 38, mark this. Thou shalt follow me hereafter or afterwards. That's grace. Amen? He didn't say, Peter, uh, if you're strong enough, you're, you, you might be able to follow me later. He said, Peter, you are going to follow me. And that's the terms of grace that you find. I, I will, the, the Jeremiah 32, I, I think that's the, the new covenant. He says, I will put my law in their hearts. And they, and, and, they, 
and I will do this, and I will do that. Christ says, thou shalt follow me. If you want to underline anything, underline that. That's the language of grace. Because Peter is going to prove in a second that he doesn't have the ability. But yet Christ speaks with such firmness. But the point is, is this is only, unlike uh, like the Jews, he says, you can't follow me. Unlike the Jews, he says, for right now. And we're going to see he said something differently to the Jews in a second. Notice here in verse 33, and I'm going to try to hurry, uh, just, just pointing out a few little things, um, how tenderly he speaks. Little children. Little children. That's an that's a evocative use, the, the direct address. He addresses them directly as little children. Children, John Gill says, as parents, when they take their leave of their children in their dying moments, give them proper instructions and orders and lay their dying injunctions on them. So Christ, taking his leave of his disciples, gives them his. Note the tenderness of our Messiah. And by the way, what was said of him prophetically? Uh, You're going to call him Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, I'm not saying here that the Father is the Son and the Son is the Father. They are distinct. The Father loves the Son. That becomes hard if you're not seeing them as distinct. Nor, but I'm saying, but what's going on here with this, with this is He is as a Father to them. In the same way, John would later say, you are as my little children uh, to, to the people that were being discipled by him in, su- in such, such terms. And that we see there, there's a tenderness and a love that is there. We see, uh, we see the fatherly care that he gives so much so that he says, if you've seen me, Thomas, later on in John 14, you have seen the Father. So when he is approaching them about this this upcoming absence of him he is doing so in a loving way not in a cold telling of the reality i'm going away and just aloof to them he says little children i'm going away little children that's a term for one that needs guidance and one that's object of affection first corinthians 3 1 or 1 Corinthians 3, 1, 1 John 2, 1, little children. This, this is how the, often the disciples themselves would see those that they were trying to minister to. Here we see Christ doing it. An important point also is his departure is spoken of by contrast of his intimate presence. He was presently with them. And the, time, and, and the time of that intimacy was going to come to a close. He was just going to be with them a little while longer. And little children would desire to seek after him and seek for the presence of the one that had been as a father to them. And we see the measurement of the sorrow that comes with this. I, I think when I approach this, I think of Elisha crying out after, after Elijah had been taken away, where he says, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. It's instructive, as Christ invoked, to note the difference between his departure being announced here to the ones that he loved and his departure being announced earlier to the Jews. Listen to how he said it in John 7.33, where he said to the Jews, 
the unbelieving Jews. For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him that sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. You will seek me and will not finally where I am. You cannot come. Ultimately, this is not what he's going to say. He's going to say in the very next chapter, he's going to say, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. So he's, he's even given a shadow of that very thing. Think, consider this again, John 8, 21. He says to the unbelieving Jews, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot again come. His departure was to be a place that the sinner and the unbelieving could not go. But that's not how he speaks of them here. When he speaks of them here, there is no prohibition that you can never follow me. There's a promise that they would soon follow. He would make that more clear with Peter here shortly. You shall follow me hereafter. So he limits here in a loving way just to the now to them. Without any absolute declaration that he will not be found or or without any declaration that they would die in their sins. There's a big difference between his announcement here to them and his announcement to the unbelieving. All uh, the disciples heard, though, was he was leaving. We see that with Peter. He, he misses everything he says about the glory of Christ that we talked about last time. He misses everything you say about the, well, we're going to talk about this great commandment, this new commandment in a second. He misses all that. And all they're hearing, you're going away? <laughs> what, 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 what do you mean you're leaving? And that, that's all they were able to hear. And that's why Christ is not, is not just going to hit this point once. He's going to continue to talk, I'm going away, but I'm not leaving you comfortless. I'm going away, but I'm not, leave, I'm, not, uh, I, I'm not leaving you without a means, without guidance. I'm going away, but I will come to you. He's giving them all of this assurance as this comes, as this upper room discourse unfolds. He tells them again and again, I am leaving for your benefit. On this basis, he gives a few a new commandment. And that's what I want to talk about for about just a few minutes this morning. On, but on this basis, he has given a new commandment. He's leaving. So what does that mean we need to do? How are we to conduct ourselves? How are we to live in the light that His his physical presence is not here to guide us? What we know of Christ is not what we can see with our eyes anymore. What we know of Christ is no longer what we can hear with our ears. We have not that perfect physical example before us to walk after, to seek after. How are we to conduct ourselves now in this reality? For the time they cannot come... They're going to have to go forward in his absence. What does that look like? And he says, a new commandment I give you. This becomes the necessity on the basis of his departure. A new commandment I give you, again, read there 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. There is a lot here, is there not? 
If I was to ask, have you lived that? How many would be able to, rhetorically, don't raise your hand, have you lived this? Is this, the, is this the thing that governs your life? Is this the command? If you love Him, you keep your commandments, His commandments, right? Uh, that's, that's the purpose of the Great Commission ultimately here is, his, is, the, is the learning to observe His commandments. Is this something you're practicing? Don't answer. Christ, by the way, is a lawgiver here. A new commandment I give you. He's a lawgiver. He gives law. Uh, He's that prophet that was greater than Moses. The one that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. That that Peter says was fulfilled in Christ in Acts 3, 20 through 23. That he is that prophet. Uh, He is that prophet that that Moses says, there's going to come a prophet after me and you're going to need to hear him. And he's going to give you law. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. He's the mediator between God and men. And He is the Lord that has all authority. It is His commands that bind the Christian. And here it lays flat before us. This is what He wants with your life. This is what He wants you to do. And He's greater than Moses. Moses gave you a lot of great commands. Of course, the Lord gave them to Moses, and they reflect God's great nature. He says, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, have no other gods before you. And here Jesus says, I'm going to add one. And this is a new commandment. And it's important. It's important for your identity as a Christian. He says, I say to you, consider the commandment. It's new. That's obvious, right? Nothing jumps out of the page of the page off of you, then this is brand new. This is this is different. Uh, it, it's a new injunction, a new purpose, a new end to pursue. It's different than the commands that came before it. That's why it's new. It's new because it came from the one that makes all things new. It's new because it's living, it, it, it's, it's brought to us in a brand new context in which our God has been revealed to us in Christ. And He, as we're going to see in a second, has shown us how to live this, how to do this. There are commands to love that were already written. This is different. We already know those commands to love. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all. All your heart, soul, mind, body. Strength, or I can't remember the exact words for some reason. But just love Him with all. And, and that's already been written. God is all. He's over all. All that we have should be directed with Him with affection. But you know what we do not have in that command? Is the how. Right? How, how do I love him with all that I have? I, 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 don't, I, I sometimes reach that, come to that great commandment and I don't even know where to begin other than the fact that I know that I'm failing to keep it. We have, we have a law to love our neighbor. It's, it's a very interesting. How, I, I can even understand that one. Love your neighbor as what? 
as you love yourself. You all know how to love yourself. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. I take, I take care of myself. I pamper myself as much as possible. I really like me. And that's how I'm supposed to treat my neighbor, right? Uh, that, that, I can understand the context, and that, that, but that, that had already been written. What does this one say? What does this new law, this different law say? Not as thyself. How am I supposed to love? As Christ loved you. That's different. That's, that's not, this is greater than the law. This is greater than Moses. This is greater than anything. This, this gives us a living example. And even though we haven't seen it with our eyes, the witnesses have told us about it. They, they told us what that looks like. And by the way, even though we've not seen it with our eyes, we've experienced it. How many of you all feel like you're lo- don't Don't answer this question because it reveals, reveals a lot, maybe a lot about where you're at. But how many of you all feel like Christ loves you? Have you experienced the love of Christ? I hope, that's, I hope you, everyone in here can say that is a deep experience that I have. I am loved of Christ. I know I am loved of Christ. I know because I have experienced it. The law simply stops at equity. This is what I want. This is what I want for myself. And therefore, this is how I'm going to treat other people. The law stops at equity. Loving in accordance with your own self-love. The gospel is something greater. It's new. Here's the newness of it. The gospel demands that we put on Christ. You know what I need to be to my brother Thomas? I need to be Christ to him. And I'm not saying I need to be a pope, a vicar of Christ, in, the sen- in that sense. I need, to, I need to show Christ to him. As I have experienced Christ, and that's why there's a deep need for us to be seeking this greater experience of Christ's love. That's the prayer of Paul. Oh, that you might know the depth of his love, the depth and the height and the length and the width of it, and that you might know the love of Christ, which passes his ability to even tell you about it. And that's how you're supposed to love your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ. You see the difference here. You see the newness of it, of, of this commandment. Uh, this is, I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters in Christ with divine love. That, that agape, right? I'm supposed to have compassion on them as Christ had compassion on me. I'm supposed to show them mercy as Christ showed me mercy. I'm supposed to forgive as Christ forgave. I'm supposed to... This is the standard. This is a standard that no one had in the law. Were they to look to Moses in the law and say, okay, that's exactly how I'm supposed to live. I'm supposed to get mad and throw some tablets down. <laughs> and, and uh, I mean, there, there's flashes of this in Moses. He would say... He, but but I, I, I'm... Uh, it, do I have an example? And who, who are you going to point to for an example? Christ says, all right, I'm your example. This is new. This is different. You're not finding this in the law. 
You're finding this in the fulfillment of the law, which is Christ. Another note, note note the greatness of the gospel here. How much greater is the gospel than Moses? How much greater is the gospel than than the law itself? When Christ gave the new commandment, he says, as I have loved you. He clearly intends to teach something here about the fundamental experience, the fundamental Christian experience. And it's this. The Christian is one who is loved of Christ. The fundamental imperative of Christianity is an open extension of that truth. We don't walk anymore in the oldness of the letter. We walk in the newness of spirit. How is that? Where, what is that spirit? It's Christ, the newness of spirit. It is to show that merciful and unmerited love to others in His stead. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, we do stand in the stead of Christ. As long as He is absent, the only way people will know Christ is to see Him in us. And I, 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 I've been guilty too, too, too often of taking a hammer to people. <laughs> not literally. I'm not confessing the crimes here. Uh, <laughs> of taking a metaphorical hammer and beating people down even in fellowship. We're the means of the experience of love of the love of Christ and for others. I've told I've said this before and this is this is important and I'm just going to kind of reiterate it again. Every Christian should have a group of Christians. I, I believe you're my group of Christians. <laughs> that, uh, that every Christian should have another group of, a group of Christians that they're a part of. That they love them. They meet with them on a regular basis. Not, not in the sense of law. Well, I got to go to church, I guess. Uh, <laughs> But we meet, you meet with them on a regular basis. You encourage them while you're there. You pray for them daily. You, you seek their good. You have a bond with them. They're important to you. And you're important to them. It's what we have to have. Because our Lord is not present right now. And... My brother Thomas needs to see him. He needs to experience Christ. He needs to experience that. I'm just picking on brother Thomas. So does my brother Paul and my brother Jimmy. And, and I think here in America, that's not what being part of a church is about. If it was, I think things would be a lot different. We, we have that with one another, I, and I, I hope we continue to flame, uh, the fan the flames of that because we need the presence of Christ, and where is Christ's presence found? Wherever two or three are gathered together, that's where His presence in a real, if you could even use the word tangible way, we're the body of Christ. 
Where his hands? Where his feet? Where were those things? We work together with him for him, doing his will in this earth. And we don't sit around thinking about well, what I so many church. What what is church about? For so many is is about what they can get out of it, and and I can understand that to a certain extent. Extent, but but it's about how I want to go to this church because that's where all the popular people go. <laughs> I want because this will make me look good in society if I go to or th- th- this has all these programs that I want and not. And it's good to have programs. I wish we had programs uh, sometimes. But, but then I say, well, programs eat a lot of time, and I don't know that I have a lot of time and, or, or take away your precious time too. But it's good to have some things. Uh, it's not, I'm not saying it's bad, but that's not describing what I just described. A group of people you meet with that you love, that you care about, that you pray for, that you encourage, that you that you are important to, and they're important to you, and you're working together, striving together, to, with one mind and one mouth to represent Christ on this earth. That's that's uh, doing it all without without a thought of how it makes you think, or or or, or how you think it makes people makes you look, or anything else. Uh, this undiscriminating love that's supposed to be here. When we have that, then we can call us a church. That's what John says later. Hereby perceive we the love of God. This is how we perceive it. Because Christ laid down His life for us, we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. You know what the tragedy of... of, uh, of I got, almost got ahead of myself a second ago talking about being the vicar of Christ... Uh, the tragedy of, of Roman religion is, is uh, it always says that someone else can represent Christ to them. Someone else can be the vicar of Christ. He, but each of us experiences the love of Christ and is to be the vicar of Christ. And that's why he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. The focus of the Christian is for whom the Lord lived and died. We should care about the people that He cared about. We should love the people that He loved. Uh, and that's not saying that we're that we're not hard to love sometimes. Because <laughs> believe it, believe me, we. I, I, I'm not going to speak for you. Believe I'm, I'm sure I'm difficult <laughs> to uh, to love. And I'm grateful that each week I come, you all make me feel like I am. We love one another as brethren in the same family. John Gill said, as brethren in the same family, children of the same father, fellow disciples with, with each other, by keeping and agreeing together, praying one for another, bearing one another's burdens, forbearing and forgiving one another, admonishing each other, and building up one another in the faith and holiness. What did Paul would say? He basically summed it up. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was that? What, what was the subject of that? The subject was how we conduct ourselves with one another, humbling ourselves for one another. We have a demonstration of divine, redemptive love in Christ. We 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 have a standard, and it's greater than 
me wanting to pamper myself, <laughs> like love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's a great place for me to condemn myself for not doing so. But me loving myself is not a great, very good standard. This new commandment gave us that great standard. In the context of his coming absence, love each other. This love is the proof that we are of Christ. What does he say now in verse 35? I need to come to a close. But by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. 1 John 2, 8 through 11. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past and the true light now shines and the true light now shines. He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him, because he that hates his brother is in darkness, and walks in darkness, and knows not whither he goes, because darkness has blinded his eyes. There is a oneness with Christian with the Christian and other believers. It excludes all possible differences. Um, we, we, we pride ourselves sometimes in making distinctions. And we make di- distinctions on, on sex, gender, class, ethnicity, and familiarity. Um, and we often, we often do so setting aside Christ and His example. He loves strangers and friends alike. There's a completeness in the love of Christ. He loved his own to the very end. Um, I've seen in Christian fellowship uh, that people tend to love until as long as it's easy, but the second someone does something to upset them, well, they're off to find another group of believers somewhere. Uh, that's, I praise God that's not the love of Christ. I'm not saying that there is no doctrinal boundaries. I'm, I can't hold hands with many people on doctrine, uh, but really that window should get much and much smaller. I know people that will... will uh, we'll, we'll pat people on the back, shake, give them the right hand of fellowship as long as they agree on some minute detail, but the second they don't, something that doesn't matter. I, I heard someone once say, well, if they don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, then I, <laughs> well, I'm glad Christ wasn't like that on earth. Some of you all, have bear, and I know you all have the love of Christ, because some of you all have bore with me through some very odd doctrines <laughs> that I have held and declared. And, uh, and by the way, I have too. I've rolled my eyes a couple times. That's what they believe? Wow. <laughs> but it wasn't bad enough for me to stop loving you. Now, there's a completeness in the love of Christ. He loved him to the end. He loved, he loved in the aspect of this great aspect, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. A walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for, as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling Savior. He gave himself completely 
as a seal of that love. We love the love of self-sacrifice. Greater love has no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. The love of encouragement, it just keeps on going as we consider the love of Christ. I keep promising I'm coming to a close, and I think I'm on the last paragraph of my notes. But it is in or by this love for one another in the stead of Christ that the testimony of Christ is clearly seen. That's what verse 35 teaches us. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love. It's a a very odd way. Often often when we're setting up conditional sentences, we'll put the if first. Um, uh, And then the conditional... Uh, the result second, the, the effect second. Uh, here it does it backwards, but this is what you would call a future, more probable construction of a, of a conditional sentence. And that's just me pontificating, and I'm sorry about that. But let me just say it like this. If the fellowship of the church meets the condition, the effect is that men will know they belong to Christ. If the church does not meet the condition, people won't know. And it doesn't matter how sound our doctrinal statement is. If we don't meet the condition, people won't know. It doesn't matter how set apart our dress is. If we don't meet the condition... People won't know. It do, it does it, it. All the things that we think identify us as Christians will be empty if we don't meet the condition. Everywhere and in all contexts where Christian love is seen, people will know that they are followers of Christ. That's been so in history. There there have been stories of the martyrs through history where people saw how these people loved each other in persecution and in sorrow and in tears and martyrdom and said, man, they are followers of Christ. Barnes noted, It shall be a thing by which you shall be known among all men. You shall not be known by special rites or habits not by special form or of dress or manner of speech, not by special austerities and unusual customs like the Pharisees, the Essens, or the scribes, but by deep, genuine, and tender affection. And it is well known. It was this which eminently distinguished the first Christians and was the subject of remark by the surrounding pagans. See, said the pagan, see how they love one another. They are ready to lay down their lives for each other. The doctrine of Christ, when learned by the results, when learned by Christ, results in love and communion, and the doctrinal statement, if truly sound, will be known by its fruits. Henry stated, by this it appears that if the followers of Christ do not show love one to another, they give cause to suspect their sincerity. I I think that's true. I have every reason to doubt the sincerity of someone's confession 
if they have no genuine affection for their brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a connection between truth and love in the scriptures. And that connection is what changed the world. I want to look at one other scripture. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. Acts 4.32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he, had, he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. That's the great the new commandment. How do we measure? Well, how do we know it? I mean, I'm not, I'm just, in the absence of where we're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper, where we're again noting the fact that He's not here at the table with us physically, are we conducting ourselves in accordance with the new commandment that He gave for us to keep? In his absence. That's what I would have you all to look at today. And now we'll prepare to take the Lord's table.